It is a battle. It's a constant battle. There is more need out there than we can meet and the need is going up. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Everyone, welcome to Purposely with Tracy Clark, CEO of Young Gloucestershire. A special episode for me. I once served as a trustee of YG, as it is known. Tracy is a really unique charity leader, one of the ones I respect most. She has a huge ability to empathize with young people. You're going to enjoy our conversation. Before we jump into the show, could I just ask whatever platform you're on, hit follow. It'll ensure you get future episodes, but it'll really help me get the message out there. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Tracy Clark, a massive and warm welcome to the Purposely Podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. This is a bit weird, isn't it? Definitely very <laughs> odd. I think we know each other. We should tell our listeners. <laughs> we definitely do. I don't know how long ago we met, though. How long ago did we meet? It's probably near 10 years now. So just for everyone's, keep uh, them up to speed quickly. So I was on the board of Young Gloucestershire and you're the CEO of Young Gloucestershire and have been for a phenomenally long amount of time. To kick us off, what does it do? What's its purpose? What's its mission? So Young Gloucestershire is a county-wide youth work charity that works across the county of Gloucestershire. We support young people who are facing challenges in their lives. So it could be anything from being involved in county lines or knife crime to young people with challenges with their mental health or young people who are seeking to get employment. So it's a really wide and broad charity that is focused around young people who are facing challenges. So on a nationwide UK basis, there's now between the ages of 16 and 24, there's something like 800,000 young people not in education, employment or training. But I was thinking about statistic and I was thinking about a lot of the talk or narrative when I was a trustee of, of YG. And actually, that's that's one powerful statistic. But so much of what you do now is around people on the margins, mental health, poverty, some of the extremes of, of what you do is, is beyond you know this employment, education, training obsession. Yeah, so it's really interesting when you talk about the kind of education piece, because post-COVID, we've seen a really significant increase in young people who have not returned to education. So we're actually doing a large piece of work around young people who are not in education for a variety of reasons, some of it being around uh, mental health, some of it around neurodiversity, and some of it around um, kind of at risk of exclusion. And obviously, we've got some of the highest exclusion rates in the country at the moment. So um, we're focusing a lot on that. But the other side that we're doing a lot of work on and our charity is significantly grown in is around mental health for young people. So we have a, our own version of um, support for young people, which is that we match youth workers and counsellors together to work with a young person. Because for us, so many of the young people's issues around mental health are practical. And actually, we need to address them at the same time as we do the clinical issues. So we bring youth workers and counsellors together. We are, are funded and support CAMS and the Adult Mental Health Service in terms of a really specific approach for young people. And I want to dive into the services that you provide in a bit more detail. But before we do, let's just cover off the history of, because YG is as it's affectionately known by myself, but YG is one of a number of sort of networked youth organizations. 
who are all a little bit different. Tell us a bit about the history. Yeah, so um, we are what was traditionally, um, historically, would have come out of the Girls and Boys Network. So the Clubs for Young People Network, which no longer exists, but has been over a number of years, lots of different mergers of charities to now create UK Youth, which is our national uh, charity that we all link into. So we're all independent charities, but we do kind of connect from a policy perspective and a development perspective. So there's charities like us all over the country working with young people and we are all very different. So the Southwest charities come together quite regularly and I chair a group of chief execs. So we do reflect and learn from each other, share our learnings and the way we do things, but we're all very independent. And it's very much for us around responding to local need and making sure that we're providing services that are needed locally rather than kind of a one-catch-all service. It's one of the differences that some of the YG equivalents have been focused on all youth, irrespective of, of their sort of background, their class, their, you know, their location to resources, I guess, but and, and others have been a bit like YG, maybe a bit more strategic and trying to help those most on the margin, those most disadvantaged. Yeah, I think we're all different sizes. So a lot of the um, organisations are still delivering kind of a youth club-based approach and uh, a diversionary offer. But there are a number of us that are focused more around the kind of the margins and the disadvantaged and kind of becoming part of the, I guess, the solution to the kind of wider societal issues. So, yes, we've really kind of moved away from delivering youth clubs and kind of open access uh, youth work, and we're much more running a one-to-one intensive support. So we tend to engage young people for six to 12 months, which is also bucking the trend slightly because a lot of the interventions are shorter And for us, it's about making sure that we can have the biggest impact so that actually young people have got the tools to be able to take control of their lives and get the best for themselves. So in terms of structure, you're an independent registered charity. You are reliant on finding your own funding. So, uh, and I know funding's a constant battle. Just tell about how you're structured. And you also be really good to weave this in, but you you uh, decided that one job wasn't enough and actually you should take on a second job. And you're also the CEO of InfoBuzz. Tell us a bit about the structure of YG first and then a bit about how and what they do. So, yeah, YG is an independent charity. We have a board of trustees who support our work. We work really hard to kind of have a really diverse income stream. So we tend to have a mix of SLAs and contracts, a mix of grant funding, and then a mix of kind of raised money. We're really keen, though, to make sure that our services are led and influenced by young people's voice. So we rarely tender for a lot of kind of big services because we want to design services with young people that meets their needs. And that can give us a challenge in terms of some of our core funding because we're not chasing some of the big tenders or the big opportunities because they don't kind of give us the opportunity to work in the way we want to. So sometimes we give ourselves the challenge even harder but we do have a whole mix of kind of income sources and are really grateful to a number of kind of statutory partners who do fund us but have allowed us to co-design those services with them because that so a little bit of lingo in there so sla stands for service level agreement doesn't it so that's more on the statutory side is it or more on the it's sort of funds to do something that the funder wants you to do 
Yeah, so sorry. Um, link, yeah, sorry about the lingo. Um, so yeah, service level agreements where we hold them will be that we have to work with a, a certain amount of young people or get a certain amount of outcomes before we get paid for that service. So we do a lot around education. So the Princess Trust team program we run in Gloucestershire and we are funded by colleges to deliver that. So we get paid as young people complete rather than the funding up front like you would from a grant or a donation. And that battle to put the young person first and to do what's right by them and to do stuff that's going to be effective and impactful, but also to keep the doors open and remain a revivable organization. It sounds great that you walk away from funding because you don't feel like it fits, but you think that's just going to be a constant battle? That's something you'll always have to deal with? I think it's a really interesting one. And I'm sure you've heard this from lots of your guests. COVID had a real impact on the way people think about funding. And for the first time during COVID, people had problems to solve and didn't have the time to go through long processes. And so we developed some really good and strong relationships during that time. And they're definitely still playing out for us in terms of being able to engage and look for solutions together rather than a commissioner designing a solution and then kind of putting it out to tender. So obviously there's pros and cons to that model, but it is a battle it's a constant battle there is more need out there than we can meet and the need is going up considerably we have grown since covid from 30 staff to just under 100 at the moment and that's due to the need but obviously the bigger you get the bigger the challenges around raising more money to kind of keep the services going so yeah it's an ongoing process I was going to say game but maybe that's not the right phrase of trying to kind of balance all of the elements together and that sounds quite hopeful. So you, you're saying to me that funders have, have changed their approach and actually they're not sitting in their ivory towers trying to decide what's right for young people. They're actually handing the power over to the young people to a certain extent or people who are on the ground in the communities. Yeah, we've definitely seen more of that and have been really pleased. We've got some really great services that we deliver now that are as a result of that co-production approach, which is kind of working together where either we bring young people to the table or we make sure we understand what the young people are saying and then go to the table to actually have those discussions. There's still lots of the traditional tendering going on too, but we are managing to survive and grow using that other model approach rather than going for lots to formal tenders. And we touched on InfoBuzz and your ability not to stick with one job, but take on two. Tell us how that came about, because that is really interesting and fascinating. And it was, from my memory, it was an organization that was on the brink financially and uh, YG took it on. Is that right? Yeah. So um, historically, actually, InfoBuzz was a department in Young Gloucestershire. And about 20 years ago, it was floated off as a separate charity with a great chief exec who was doing an amazing job and kind of grew the charity. And it became really well known for its drugs and alcohol services. And then what happened is the obviously the market changed, the way services were commissioned and developed changed, and InfoBuzz started to kind of probably get lost in its way a little bit in terms of what its focus was and what it was doing. And so it got itself into a bit of a challenge around uh, not having the finances, not having the management structures in place. And so there was an approach made to Young Gloucestershire to see whether we could merge the two charities. The challenge with merging at the time was InfoBuzz is all about families and young people and Young Gloucestershire is all about young people. 
So when you look at those two kind of brands, it's quite difficult sometimes to understand do they fit, re- they, they complement each other really well, but they don't necessarily fit together was the thinking at the time. So the decision was made that I'd be seconded two days a week to work for InfoBuzz while we kind of got it back on its feet. So I think we're five or six years in, so clearly well past the point of getting it back on its feet. It's doing an amazing job and it's doing some really specialist work around supporting families who've got a loved one in prison, supporting families who've got a transgender child, supporting families around mental health, as well as doing a big piece again around the education around young people who have got statements who are not in school and the challenges around education, uh, particularly in Gloucestershire at the moment for young people with statements. And so InfoBuzz's focus is all around families, but with the child at the centre. And so, yeah, I ended up not with one job, but two jobs. Not quite sure how that happened. Well, obviously, I know how it happened. But um, yeah, it wasn't part of the plan. And I really want to go into your career journey in a minute. But firstly, I think it's be really good to, to touch on Gloucestershire. And so it's a unique county in many ways. One of the aspects of that is it's both rural and urban. There's some real deprivation. There's also some extreme wealth as well. I think it's quite a unique county. But tell us a bit about some of the issues that you face that are maybe unique to the rest of the UK or, you know, that your both your organisations are facing. So it's really interesting. A few years ago, we did um, a massive research project with around 5,000 young people from across the county to understand the issues and the things that mattered to them. And transport was number one on the list. For us, that that issue around having urban and rural, transport is a real challenge for young people who live outside of the kind of major hubs. And one of the issues that we face is that it's actually really difficult in like the rural forest to get from one town to another in that area. And it's often easier to get into Gloucester or Cheltenham. So when you're looking at providing services, often people are like, we want a local service, but actually the local service doesn't necessarily become any more accessible unless you live in that particular town so for our young people one of the things that they always talk about is transport and the challenges that that brings not just the lack of it but the cost of it as well is really kind of obstructive for them the second thing that young people raised was environmental. So we're seeing this uh, generation of young people who are really concerned about their environment and what that will mean and how we become a more environmentally friendly county. So there's some really, again, we've got some real kind of country areas and we've got some really kind of uh, built up areas. And so really thinking about the complexity of that in, again, two different kind of areas. And then we're into the, the stuff that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is more the disadvantaged piece around access to education and making sure it's equal and different areas have different challenges. And then the same around mental health services for some young people to access those travel. They, again, have to travel quite considerable distances and without, obviously, uh, support from parents, that can be quite challenging. So a lot of it comes back to transport. And then it's about how do you make services accessible when actually the county is sprawling. But we also struggle with the fact that some of the, uh, the county is really affluent and then other areas are really deprived and they could be really close to each other. And that really impacts on trying to fund projects alongside the issue that sometimes our projects can seem expensive because obviously you have to factor in travel. Yeah. 
And you've, you know, you are a deliverer of services and, and you've, you've talked about some of them already, but you've also had a sort of a drive around in-person stuff. And I'm thinking about sort of, you know, Gloucestershire or Gloucester's city centre and your part or role in sort of regenerating it in many ways, but bringing some vibrancy back, bringing some sort of aspiration back, bringing, you know, having a presence in the city. Tell us a bit about your role in being present in the city. So, yeah, we are based in the centre of Gloucester and actually for a number of years we were in a really run-down, derelict building and one of our visions and dreams for our young people was to have a really nice space for them to be because so often uh, charities have poor buildings and young people don't get the space that they deserve. So we actually have taken over, we managed to raise the funding to buy a head office building which is actually in the docks in Gloucester so we get to look out over the water which is beautiful and we've redeveloped a building to make it basically fit for young people and to create appropriate spaces that we think young people deserve so we've got indoor gardens and we've got we've actually got our own outside garden as well and then we've obviously refurbished the whole of the building we've then been working with a number of other charities that are based in the city to really think about how do we make Gloucester a place for young people to come and feel safe and want to be in the city as part of that we're doing a piece of work around a violence strategy because we have seen some unfortunately some violent incidences in the city and then a piece around more creative and uh, fun opportunities really for young people so it's just about working together with a collaboration of other charities to look at how we can kind of improve the offer for the city and in terms of your career i really want to dive into that but i want to take you further back and and look back to your you know, early years. And was there any hint that you might end up in a for-purpose role, that you might end up leading not one, but two charities? Is, it, is there stuff growing up that you look back on and think, aha, that, that kind of makes sense? It's funny you asked me that question because I'm um, interviewing at the moment uh, major donors around their motivations for giving. And um, it all obviously, in most cases, always stems back to a personal story. So it, I guess it's the same for me in the sense that I was an inner city Leeds kid, grew up in a kind of in an inner city Leeds area. My brother you're, nor- you're a northerner, aren't you? Yeah, I'm I'm a northerner that left at 18 and haven't really been back since though. Um, but I still hold on to my northern roots and uh, definitely think it forms part of who I am and what I do. My brother as a baby was really quite poorly and as a result of that I was a child that was kind of looked after by lots of different peoples over a number of periods because my parents were obviously working and at the hospital looking after my brother. And so I actually became a mute child and didn't really talk in my early years. I guess my brain these days would tell you it linked to kind of lack of attachment maybe in those earlier years. And so I was always a quiet, shy child and grew up kind of hiding in the background really and kind of just trying to keep my head down and keep out of the way and then as I came into my teenage years I had a youth worker who really helped me to realize that I had something to offer and that I had things to contribute and that I shouldn't hide and got me involved in lots of different events and activities and kind of national things and a bit of international kind of youth event stuff and I guess that's where my confidence started to grow and how I started to kind of get more involved. My parents then got divorced when I was 16, and I spent my A-level years in the pub, which I thought was a great idea until 
exam result day when they were a bit like, what have you been doing for the last two years? So I had to get a job. And the first job I got was working in a pathology lab. So I used to look after uh, the storage of human organs so that the pathologists could do the work on them. And I still to this day think if I'd have got an admin job, I might still have been there. But obviously a year into that job, I was like, there's got to be more to life. So I, um, I packed up and went off to university to do youth work. So I guess I've got the pathology lab to thank for uh, giving me a kick to go and actually do something with my life. Yeah. And being silent, like what ages were you silent? And do you have a memory of, of that? So definitely early years, the only person I would talk to was my brother. So I would whisper into his ear and then he would say whatever I wanted him to say. Definitely in early primary school. And I I have a memory of being referred for language therapy and kind of actually a bit of hoo-ha around whether I needed it or not, um, because there was a conversation around whether I had language or whether I was just choosing not to use it. And I'm guessing mutism wasn't as well known then as it is now. I also had um, a next door neighbor who had been in the war and had actually been shot in the war. And so he had to walk every day to keep his leg moving. And he used to take me for a walk around the graveyard most days. And he was one of the only other people that I would talk to. So apparently I would chatter away to him, but then come home and not talk to anybody else. So uh, yeah, I was definitely kind of primary school years. I was very non-communicative. And arrive at university and getting some confidence and you're inspired by that youth worker that you'd come across and like I'm I'm just thinking got to university and you said hit the pub and then you couldn't shut Tracy up was it was there <laughs> did you suddenly like start catching up on and and start thinking and feeling like yourself and and forming your identity yeah I guess there was a big piece for me in that of I realized I could be really useful to people So I guess I found my identity in the sense of being able to support and help other people rather than it being focused on me. And so, yeah, I started to, I guess my university lecturers would probably say that, yeah, I never did shut up because I was obviously then trying to work everything out in a way that maybe other people had worked it out before. But yeah, definitely those years at university really allowed me to kind of, I had an, an unusual degree in the sense that you were on a placement all the time while you were studying so I was based in a youth work placement and was working with young people the whole time and that was really good for me because it helped me to kind of really put into practice the things that I was learning at university so yeah I guess the two together helped me find my way and so this is at Oxford Oxford Brooks University is that right yeah that's right I was actually studying in Cambridge but an Oxford Brooks University course for a bit of confusion getting away, like making that break from the north and and being a million miles away from home, was that part of it? I think for me, it was about me learning to stand on my own two feet and working out who I was. So I love the north and it holds a really special part in my heart and it's a really strong part of my identity. But I think for me, I needed to go and stand on my own two feet and work out my own my own life and not be somebody's sister or somebody's daughter and actually be me because characterized northern approach is straight talking right like this this is kind of what we're talking about like down to down to earth straight talking are they some of the values that you're talking about yeah I absolutely think so and obviously you know from working with me I can be very uh, straight and to the point um I definitely tend to just to get on with it yeah and 
applied theology, which is part of your course, and some of your earlier youth work experiences where sort of faith was played a bit of a role. Tell us about your relationship with with faith and God and 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 stuff like that. Is that has that been a, a threat? So definitely a thread through my earlier years. A lot of what I did and a lot of the youth work experiences were all through church and church-based organizations. Um, my degree def- was all around applying kind of theology to the theory of youth work. I would say having had some kind of life experiences, particularly around getting divorced, that actually I kind of moved quite a long way away from the church and kind of faith because it didn't really deal well with that. And that kind of made it into a negative experience. And so faith probably plays much less of a part now in my life than it did in my earlier years. Yeah, because you've been in your role 13 years, but you've got a real thirst for study from what I, what I know and, and, can, and can see. Is this because you're trying to be the best version of yourself? It, is it you love the discipline? Like what, what with so much study and like you've sacrificed some time and and life stuff eh, to study. Tell us why study was some has been so important to you. I think if I'm really honest, fundamentally, it's about proving to myself that I can. So I think as a I was the first child in kind of my immediate family to get a degree, and I think that for me was around me being able to prove that I am capable and that I've got something to offer. I think following that, I did a math an MBA and that was more about I found myself leading a charity for the first time and then realizing that I knew nothing about business and so I had to learn it really quickly so I think my style has been when I need to learn something or I'm intrigued by something then I want to go and understand it and do more about it so the MBA was definitely about I really believe charities should be run like businesses and that they become much more successful when they are run like that so the MBA was very much about me understanding that world I then found myself in a role where I was in a larger charity managing larger budgets and didn't understand enough about finance and particularly charity finances so I guess my style then becomes to go and learn that so I went off and did my SIP for charity accounting and then more recently I'm currently doing a master's in philanthropy and that for me is about really understanding how people give why they give their motivations I guess, again, to really help me understand as we're growing and becoming bigger, how do we use the diverse options around raising money and make the charity more sustainable? So I think it's always come from a want to learn and understand a subject area. And I guess formal learning forces me to do that. But what's bizarre is I don't see myself as an academic at all, which is an odd thing to say, or a lot of people think is an odd thing for me to say, bearing in mind that I've done so much study. Yeah. But you're applying it, right? So I know, I know and I've seen um, evidence of that. Now, this is a bit odd. So before this recording and, and podcast, I admitted to you that I, I sort of drew a bit of a diagram, a Tracy Clark diagram. <laughs> and bear with me, but at the foundation of it, you've got your absolute belief in young people and their potential. So that was the sort of the foundation of this diagram. You've got this sort of street-level smarts and, you know, for You've had, you've had pink hair and, you know, like you said, you spent a long time talking about Proust or something in a pub and, you know, but you've got huge amounts of empathy for others. Then the diagram moves up and you've got this ability to sort of operate in civil society. You get business and enterprise. You can deal with high net worths. And then through all of that, 
you've had to be a leader. And then then you've combined things like, this is before it was sort of okay to, like I've, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I've seen you be vulnerable in board meetings um, and you've also been incredibly strong in board meetings, but combining vulnerable and vulnerability and strength. Like, you know, you're you're all of those things, I, I think. So I think I know you better than yourself, but, <laughs> but I'll let you have the same word. Yeah, I think you've kind of summed it up. I think for me, it is about bringing my true self to whatever I'm doing and adding all of that knowledge and experience allows me to be those kind of diverse people and diverse roles at different times. I'm a massive believer in being vulnerable um, and being open when it's appropriate and when it helps people really understand particularly motivations and kind of why you're doing things. I think the leadership piece is a really interesting one because I run an organization that is probably very different and what staff say to us when they join is very different to anything they've experienced before and trying to get the balance between looking after each other and looking after the staff's well-being alongside making sure we get the job done for the young people is kind of a line we walk every day and it's a challenge that we kind of process and I've got an amazing senior management team around me who are kind of living that out and delivering that but for me yeah it is all about the diversity of knowledge and then bring in your kind of true self and that whole piece around remembering all sides of the coin we know now know that um even leaders aren't perfect and we now know that people bring their you know frailties to work and things that they're not good at like what aren't you good at like where do you struggle on as a leader I think it's interesting because one of my strengths is the bluntness, but there's times that that bluntness can offend or mean that people don't bring their thoughts to the table because they're worried about kind of what the response might be. I think one of the things that I find really interesting as the charity is growing is how little I know about the day-to-day of what we do. And I found that quite challenging in terms of making sure that I'm in the right headspace to grow the charity, which means I have to operate very differently. So as somebody who's hands-on, wants to get involved in everything, wants to be part of something, as we're growing, I'm obviously coming further and further away from kind of the staff on the ground, the actual day-to-day policies and procedures of how we do things. And I've got an amazing team who are looking after that and doing a fantastic job. But I think the when, it, when I did, interesting enough, when I had my debate with the chair a couple of weeks ago around kind of the future there's a danger that I hold the charity back because I'm too involved in the detail rather than moving out to what's going to happen in 12 18 months two years time as we continue to grow and become an even bigger charity so definitely changing that mindset is a learning piece for me at the moment I think the strengths and weaknesses thing is you just you change depending on what's happening don't you and every time we've never been this big we've never had the challenges we have now so everything is still a learning experience for me and so it's just working that through yeah because uh working on the business if we call it a business working on the business instead of in it and one of the things i think you'd probably struggle with is maybe it's hiring staff so um because that was really important for you eh? finding the right fit the right human beings with the right values and the right approach but I guess, you know, there's, there's different ways of getting the right people and that you don't necessarily have to be in the interviews, Tracy. So, <laughs> so what, Mark, what Mark's trying to tell you there is he spent a very lot of time with me interviewing when he was a trustee of YG 
because Mark has a really interest in the kind of psychology of people and he used to like look at things differently in interview and kind of pick things out and I really valued that when we were trying to look at recruiting. Recruiting is a really interesting one. It's been a real challenge recently, partly because the speed we're growing and the speed we want to recruit at and partly because obviously the current climate means that the opportunities and the kind of financial piece for um, staff. I'm really pleased to say we're fully recruited for the first time in quite a while. So we've had over a period of three months another 25 staff join us which is obviously quite a a big growth and kind of lots of things to deal with as part of that but you're right I'm actually banned from interviewing I'm not allowed to interview anymore and we have a great staff team who focus on it we've got some great processes and systems in place um, and we're learning every day but um, yeah it's definitely something that I'm no longer allowed to be part of very rarely anyway no one in leadership, especially not running at well, two organizations, but 13 years you've been in the role. What has been the hardest challenge? It's like, is there a day? Is there a week? Is there a topic? Is there an issue? Like, tell us about the hardest challenge you've had. Oh, that's a really interesting one. When I started working with InfoBuzz, I thought raising funds for InfoBuzz was going to be tough. And actually, the funding came really quickly because what the staff were doing on the ground was really valued. The culture piece in the organization was the hardest piece because everybody was used to working in a certain culture and a certain process and actually trying to change that culture and run the charity more like a business and kind of think about the choices the charity was making was probably the hardest piece to kind of get the staff to move on that journey. So definitely kind of developing culture and making sure that you've got everybody moving along in the same vein has probably been one of the challenges when you're when you're coming through a crisis like Infobus was in. Obviously, COVID was a really interesting time and I'm sure lots of your guests have talked about it. For us, we made a decision really early on that we, were, we weren't going home. So we pivoted overnight and we put all of our staff out onto the street. We started identifying vulnerable young people who were out on the street when they shouldn't be and understanding why rather than just criminalizing them and sending them home. So we did a lot of work with the police and then we started pivoting all of our services obviously to be online and we grew really quickly because the need was there. I think we raised about a million pounds in about I don't know, eight, 10 weeks, which obviously is unheard of for us, but it was because the need was so big. And so that was a challenge, but it was kind of a really rewarding challenge because a lot of the systems and processes that slow things down were taken away and we were just able to get on with the job. So I guess, if I'm honest, every day has got a different challenge, hasn't it? What have you learned in terms of leadership? Like the leader today versus the leader 13 years ago or, you know, even 10 years ago, how would you describe those learnings? So I guess 10 years ago, I'd have been right in it and I'd been on the shop floor doing the doing as well as leading the direction. Now for me, it's very much about making sure that my leadership is around making sure I've got a great senior management team who are the ones that are doing the doing and making sure things are happening and that actually my focus is really on what's coming next what's the future what should we be thinking about one of the key things is about making sure you've surrounded yourself with all of the right people so a real challenge is if you don't have the resource around you you can't achieve the you can have whatever dreams you want but actually if you haven't got the right people so there is a big thing for me around making sure that we are 
we have the right senior management team and we've made a really strong decision to grow from within. So we're growing our next leaders and I spend a lot of time and investment in making sure that we're growing those leaders and that we're building that kind of skill and knowledge that those guys need to be able to run the charity moving forward. There's kind of a good adage, isn't there, about always replace people with always replace yourself with people that are better than you. And I guess that's one of the things I'm trying to do at the moment. I think that's great. A lot of people don't do that and they go and look for shiny new things and different people. And and I think that's awesome. And, you know, because pay is not a reason we people work for YG, right? It's not the, it's the, it's the purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the charity sector, and there's this phrase called, you know, like, um, or focus really around founder syndrome, which I think you're not the founder of, of YG, but you've been there so long and you've seen it through so many different phases and iterations it will reflect you. It just will. And, and, I, and I know it does. Sounds like you've got really good, robust plans and to ensure that it's stronger because, you know, you're going to build some infrastructure. But do you see yourself still in the organization? And, you know, will it be 20 years of Tracy Clark's leadership or actually are you excited about beyond your leadership? So I'm definitely building the leaders of the future who will take over the charity. And it's always hard to know, isn't it? Because when the time comes, it will be a, obviously an open and transparent recruitment process. But I would like to think that the leaders that are kind of coming up are definitely in a good place to be able to have the skills and knowledge to take it over. In terms of how long I'm staying, I was staying for six years and I'm still here. So I'm not quite sure the answer to that question. I feel like every time I've thought about moving on, there's been a new challenge or there's been a new situation or a new opportunity. And so for me, it's about staying for as long as I'm needed, but not outstaying my welcome. And so when I start becoming the problem, my team have been briefed to actually tell me that they think I'm now causing them more issues than I'm helping. And I think that's really important in terms of that kind of transparency around, I don't want to outstay my welcome. As you know, I'm studying a master's in philanthropy at the moment. So I've got other options and, and other interests, but there's no firm decisions at the moment. I'm not about to go anywhere in the next year or two, but I don't know how long I don't know how long I'll stay and I don't know how long I'll be needed, but there'll become a time when I aren't needed and, you know, those conversations will be open and transparent and I will, you know, happily move on at that point. And obviously, if for me it's time to go before then, I'll make sure that the right things are in place. So, yeah, I don't really know my plan. I don't really have a life plan other than I get up every day and kind of hope to make a difference for some young people. And when you're not doing your two jobs and you're not doing your study and you're not doing your board roles, because I know you've been in governance roles and, and you're involved in, I think it's the Gloucestershire Community Foundation, isn't it? Is that right? You're involved yeah. on the board of that? Uh, yeah, I'm the vice chair of the Community Foundation. Wonderful. And I chair the grants panels as well. What are you doing when you're not doing all of that? <laughs> so I'm really lucky that in recent a year ago yesterday actually we moved into the Malvern Hills so I spend a lot of time running in the Malvern Hills or walking my very crazy border collie so I'm definitely an outside girl and I want to be out and about in the fresh air enjoying I guess the kind of the beauty of our country so all camper vanning is my other guilty pleasure and the odd pub possibly yeah so the camper vanning always pretty much ends up sleeping in a pub car park Wonderful. And the Malvern Hills, that sort of um, 
like bear with me, I'm a Kiwi, but we're talking hills between Wales, the border of Wales and and the West Country, like that's around that yeah. area, South yeah. Wales. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really beautiful part of kind of, um, it's Worcestershire, but just on the border of Herefordshire and is a kind of a big splay of a whole kind of nine, 10 miles of beautiful hills. Are you actually more yourself? Like, do you, is that when you get your real senses of being, like just being in, in, in the environment and being quiet and just being around nature? Yeah, so I get my energy, I guess, from being either on my own or with my partner. So books play a big part for me as well. So, you know, sitting in a hammock reading a book is definitely my idea of a good Sunday afternoon or being out on the hills kind of wondering is definitely where I get my kind of, I guess I rebuild myself and rebuild my energy stores ready for the kind of next onslaught of the following week. And there's so much negativity in the world and there's been a lot of negativity in Britain as well for, you know, socioeconomic and political reasons and, and all that sort of stuff. But cutting through all of that, like what gives you hope? What do you feel most inspired by? I've got my, I'm sitting here thinking what you might say, but yeah, what gives Tracy hope? I guess it's a, you know, young people have real aspiration. They have drive and they absolutely are in a position to kind of continue to change our world for the better. And I guess that for me definitely gives me hope. I think the rest of it then is about, hmm, it's interesting, isn't it? You've stumped me slightly there. I guess it's a, it is kind of good people, nice people, people who care. Interviewing major donors has been really inspiring in terms of why people give what they give. And a lot of it's about their time as well and their commitment to kind of, you know, use their wealth to to improve and change outcomes for everybody. So for me, I guess it's about that community approach of kind of we're all in it together. Yeah. And I'm really, I'm interested actually, because going back to my diagram that I, I, I pulled together, like that understanding of the reality of the streets or what it's like living in poverty or all those challenges. And then, then you find yourself having a cup of tea with a high net worth in rural Gloucestershire. And yeah, let's say that individual has some set views of the world that you might not disagree with or don't chime with reality. How do you take, hey, what's your approach? Like, I, I can assume you don't sit back and you're not quiet, but how do you sort of keep the relationship and not fall out of the high net worth, but take them on a journey? Like, what's your approach? It's all about story. It's all about sharing the young people's experiences and helping people really understand what's going on for our young people. And I think it's really challenging because, you know, so I was talking to a high net worth the other day who was saying they were the high sheriff and being the high sheriff opened their eyes to the poverty in the county. And prior to that, they were donating out of the county. And then they visited loads of charities and realized that actually we've got so much to do in the county. So for me, it's about seeing as believing. It's about creating opportunities to meet young people, to hear young people's stories. And for me to share some of, you know, the things that are going on, like, you know, the things that are going on today in our charity, you know, are extreme. We've got young people who are being trafficked or are caught up in CSE and in, sorry, child sexual exploitation and county lines drugs. And then we've got young people who are um, struggling with challenges with their mental health and are sofa surfing. And actually that's a reality for me that I see every day. And it's hard not to become blasé because 
that is just a big part of my day. But for so many people, they've never been exposed to that. And it's how do we help people understand that and see that and hear those stories so that they actually really understand what's going on in the county. Yeah, you've struck on something really interesting, eh? like how do charity workers who get so much exposure to bad stuff or, or difficult stuff, how do you stay sort of raw which when you need to be or empathetic when you need to be? How do you connect still with the, the kind of service user, if we want to call them that? Like, what, what are the ways you do that? So from a formal point of view as an organization, we run a process of reflective practice. So all of our staff will go into reflective practice sessions at least once a month. And that really helps us to kind of check, A, have we missed anything? Have we, do, have we uh, not done something that we should have done? But it also helps us to just put everything into perspective and to kind of remember what's kind of normal and what's not so normal and actually the things that we should be tackling that we might have started to accept. And so I think it's a whole mix. I surround myself with a number of people who I eat lunch with who will help me just remind me that actually some of what we're doing and seeing isn't like the norm for everybody. And so I think it's just about balance again. I think it's about surrounding yourself with the right people, having the right conversations and making sure that you're creating good space to reflect. And YG in 18 months, two years, what, what's the near future look like? So we're working on some really interesting stuff. We'd really like to expand our mental health to supporting young people who are actually in hospital. We would really like to be doing some more work around refugees and some further support around transgender young people and their families. So we've got a whole range of projects that we're developing. There's also a massive need around generic mentoring for young people. So we've got some real specific mentoring programs that are around the high-end things around knife crime and, and exploitation. But actually, we're just seeing a large amount of young people who just need everyday support to stay in education or to stay connected and so we'd really like to expand that we've expanded our animal therapy offer so we've got um additional therapy dogs working with your people which we're really excited about and is obviously something that's a bit more unique so for us it is about the need is there we're seeing a significant increase in referrals and we will continue to grow to respond to that need from young people so to summarize what young people need is they need someone to believe in them and they need a purpose and they need a guide. Absolutely, yes. Tracy Clark, Masters, thank you for joining me on Purposely. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 